Hi folks, Yanni Tokola here from Wildlife Cake and Cocktails, coming to you from our quarantined podcast basement. Uh, just a quick update before we get into our show on the butterflies of Australia with Chris Sanderson. Throughout the show, we are discussing bushfires, particularly the bushfires we had here in Australia in 2019 and uh, early 2020. Now, the show is actually being released in the latter part of March, so we have a couple of uh, updates that we should mention. Uh, we discuss the Kangaroo Island Dunnart and the Wallamai Pine as both potentially being casualties of the bushfires that were really going on uh, still at the time of recording. Now, since then, the Kangaroo Island Dunnart has actually been recorded on camera traps on the island. And thanks to some heroic firefighting efforts, the Wallamai Pine Grove was also saved. So some uh, fantastic updates there. But uh, uh, we will also have some more coronavirus news coming out on uh, some of our Quarantinis live shows very shortly. But for now, let's get into this show, The Butterflies of Australia with Chris Sanderson. Cheers, guys. And we're back. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Wildlife Cake and Cocktails. We have a butterfly-related show for you today, and uh, very exciting. We're going to be talking with uh, Chris Sanderson. He's a threatened species ecologist uh, and uh, a PhD student at UQ. Uh, we have some fantastic drinks on the table as well. We're drinking Mexican butterflies. Uh, there's uh, some tequila, some lime juice, uh, half a shot of elderflower cordial, uh, and some honey with some mint leaves shaken on ice and uh, with some rocks. And uh, we have butterfly cupcakes as well. Uh, we got lingonberry and uh, lemon curd, which uh, I haven't tried yet, so I've got to get into this. This lemon curd looks awesome. Mm. Yeah, it must be. Definitely helps with introductions to have a mouthful of cake. <laughs> so we will be speaking with Mr. Chris Sanderson today, and here he is on our couch. Uh, he's an ecologist, PhD candidate, threatened species researcher, and uh, despite a childhood interest in butterflies and birds, his first degree was in IT from the University of Queensland, um, returning back to the to UQ to complete a Bachelor of Science in Ecology, uh, which led to a 10-year career in conservation with uh, numerous roles, including uh, BirdLife Australia at Broome's Bird Observatory, running BirdLife's atlasing in regional nat uh, natural resource management projects, uh, designing consultation of Queensland government's wetland info database, and as an ecologist conducting environmental impact statements around some of Australia's most sensitive environments. Uh, which uh, a lot of this work brought up some questions about some of the approaches to assessment and protection of threatened species and communities, which led to a PhD on uh, threatened species listings and the processes in Australia and how policy and legislation uh, differ across the country and how that impacts on things like data deficiency and uh, basically ways to improve those processes. Uh, it was recently also became the project officer for Butterflies Australia a brand new citizen science app for recording butterfly sightings and data, uh, including a free digital field guide and uh, with a lot of other features in development to explore this butterfly data in map form. You can check out the app at butterflies.org.au or on Facebook or Twitter at OzButterflies. Uh, you can also get the app straight from the Google App Store. Just look for Butterflies Australia and you can follow Chris on Twitter at ChrisTheBirder. Chris, how you doing, man? Great. And uh, enjoying all this wet weather that we're finally having. It's fantastic. Look, um, you know, obviously being so dry and all the fires at the moment, uh, it's just fantastic to see the, the rain, but also, uh, you know, our wildlife's going to love it because uh, it has been so dry and that impacts on them too. A bit of a reprieve is uh, pretty much due. 
Absolutely. And uh, I think for, for a lot of us, we're hoping this is the start of a fairly extended wet season rainfall a little bit late. but uh, It would be nice. That's not what the, the Bureau of Meteorology is saying, but <laughs> uh, it would certainly be nice if this is the break of the drought. Yeah, yeah, that would be nice. And I, I guess we should uh, just uh, straight off the bat, there have been these uh, massive fires, obviously, and it is something that we, we do want to talk about a bit more in terms of... Uh, butterflies as well. Um, do, you, do you expect that they're going to have had a massive impact on some of our butterflies? Yeah, look, absolutely. Um, I've been speaking with Michael Braby, who's one of the foremost butterfly experts in Australia. He's also one of my main collaborators on uh, the Butterflies Australia project. And uh, he's very concerned about a number of subspecies and populations being completely wiped out. Um, and, you know, we can talk a little bit about that later, but... Um, yeah, we'll definitely yeah, wrap back around to that. They've, they're very concerned that we might be seeing some butterfly extinctions, at least at the subspecies level. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I mean with the, um, what, 1 million, 1 million hectares or 12, some, some, some I think ridiculous it's thing. like 12 million 12 million hectares. hectares, that's right. Yeah, 12 million hectares, 1, mil, 1 billion spe- uh, individual animals. And I don't that's think that... vertebrates. They've estimated over a trillion insects. Over a trillion insects. Yeah. That, so yeah, obviously butterflies not included in that, that 1 billion animals. Um, and that was, I believe, from uh, Professor Chris Dickman at the University of Sydney. So that's a solid right. estimate as well. Um, he actually said that was a conservative estimate in his opinion. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I remember it started out at like 480 million and ran <laughs> up. And yeah, who knows where it, where it could go. Um, obviously we'll wrap back uh, around to that later. But look, uh, I want to have a bit of a chat about, I guess, how you got into ecology. So Interesting that you started out in IT. Obviously, you were very interested in nature from um, uh, from what I understand your grandparents. What got you uh, into IT and, uh, I guess, computational biology and ecology uh, these days? Yeah, well, so, yeah, my grandmother was a bird watcher and so I was really interested in birds as a kid um, and just nature in general. I've spent a lot of time out in the bush. Uh, my grandparents owned a farm. So, you know, Christmases and Easter's and all of that, you know, I was out in the bush rather than being in the city, which was a really lovely thing to be able to do as a kid. And it really did foster a love of nature. But I guess going through high school, I became a bit of a nerd, you know, spent a lot more time watching Star Wars and, uh, <laughs> and um, playing Dungeons and Dragons and things like that. And a little bit less time in nature. So I came out of the end of high school sort of a bit stuck for what to do with my life, as I think most people are. And, um, and I decided, you know, IT was sort of the new thing, you know, lots of people were making a lot of money. This is just before the dot-com bust happened. Right. So we're in the middle of the dot-com boom at this point. What and, year? Uh, so I, I graduated from high school at 1996. Okay. So it was only a few years after that, that the dot-com bust happened. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I thought IT seemed like a, a really, a really good idea at the time. It seemed like a good way to have a stable career and make a lot of money. Um, which it possibly would have been had I stuck with it. Um, but of course, by the time I graduated from university, there was, you know, hundreds and thousands of people who were out of work in the IT industry, not a lot going on. I worked for a year um, for, a, for a firm that did um, software solutions and hardware solutions for, for, uh, for people. And, you know, it wasn't, wasn't my cup of tea. I think I realized over the course of that 12 months that I really just needed something outdoors. You know, I didn't want to work at a desk for the rest of my life. And um, and so I went, I went on a, a sabbatical overseas, you know, spent three months backpacking around South America and Europe and uh, came back having decided that I was going to study ecology. When I told my friends and family, they all looked at me and said, well, duh, of course you are. <laughs> it's like, well, why didn't you tell me this back when I was deciding to study IT? Right. But I don't regret it because it's it's very, very compatible with what I do now. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there's, uh, I guess, a lot of people that I've met who've had that same thing of they've gone in one direction 
maybe it hasn't worked out in their career and then they've gone back to their passion for, for wildlife or conservation. Like, for example, economists. Um, economics and that kind of mathematics is a, is a fantastic uh, statistical tool to use for conservation and wildlife. So some of those economists who kind of end up uh, giving up on the financial world and going back into uh, wildlife science and conservation do, do amazing stuff. Oh, look, absolutely. And I would say um, by applying economic thinking and um, high-end statistical methodology to conservation, we've actually come a huge way from, you know, the 80s in terms of what we're able to do. As computational power has increased, the things that we can actually do with computers to solve problems has also improved. And, um, you know, programs like um, Accent, which does um, species distribution modelling, you know, 20 years ago that wouldn't have been possible with the computers that we had then. But nowadays we can, um, we can put out really high-quality models of where we would expect species to be living based on climatic variables and things like that. And this is a, this is a statistical um, technique that was taken from another research discipline and applied to conservation and ecology um, very successfully. Yeah, right. So uh, I, and, uh, from economics to all these other fields, including your own, um, of IT, um, I guess what skills have been useful from IT specifically transferring into ecology? I'm, I imagine you're doing a lot of computational stuff, so code writing and things like that must have already been pretty useful. Yeah, look, absolutely. If you're going to do research um, in conservation, uh, then you're probably going to be wanting to use statistical methodologies. So like I said, Maxent is a big one, um, but there's also all kinds of different code packages in R, which is a free statistical program. Um, and, you know, being able to f- you know, freely write code for R or for Python, uh, which are both languages that are very u- um, highly used in my field, um, has definitely been a, a huge benefit. Probably the thing that's been most useful, though, is um, being able to easily learn how to use mapping programs. So things like ArcGIS, um, where, where you take, um, you know, X, Y coordinates, you know, species records that you've collected in the field and turn them into a, a map layer that you can put up against satellite imagery or climatic variables or a digital elevation model, which gives you the height above sea level and things like that. Being able to put all of those different layers together and visually on a map to use for an analysis is actually extremely, extremely important and surprisingly difficult for people who don't have an IT background. Yeah, that GIS, GIS is a, a geographical information systems, I believe. Uh, and that stuff can be uh, very difficult for somebody if you don't really have a bit of a computational background, that's for sure. Um, but I, I suppose on top of that, you've you've had a since then you you have a fairly significant amount of field experience as well. You're not just behind the computer all the time. That's right. So you know, as as you mentioned in the introduction, uh, I came out of university the second time and went straight into a job for BirdLife Australia. So I worked at Broome uh, for a year, which was fantastic. Um, you know, it's a, it's more of an internship than a job. You know, you don't get paid a whole lot, but. Uh, you know, I was the doing, experience is worthwhile. Right. You know, for me at the time, I could afford to do it. You know, they put you up, you know, your accommodation's free. They give you some money for food. And, you know, I got the best training that you could possibly hope for in shorebird identification and surveys, um, you know, teaching other people how to identify birds, going out and doing tours. So, you know, I, I uh, had the best time, um, you know, it was one of the best times of my life, really. And uh, through um, surveying some of these really remote environmentally sensitive areas, do you have any that you personally find most fascinating? So for me, I'm a, I'm a reptile nerd. I, I do really enjoy the Brigalow um, and, the, and the wet rainforest areas, obviously. 
do you yourself have sort of some, uh, any habitats that kind of, uh, when you, at least when you were working with them, you felt a particular affinity for? It's kind of funny because as a consultant, you know, people complain about spin effects a lot, but <laughs> I kind of feel like I've come home when I go back to a place with spin effects. So spin effects is our arid zone triodia grasses, which, uh, and there's a few other species in there, which are very, very arid zone adapted, very, very spiky. That's right. So porcupine grass is one of the old names yeah, for right. them and they'll stick through just about any cloth you could wear. Walking, no... walking through some spin effects in, uh, even in, uh, jeans, you're going to get home and have some, some pinpricks and some scratches throughout your, throughout your calves and thighs and shins. But it's a quintessentially Australian species. And, you know, when you're in a place with spin effects, you can expect red soil and big rocky escarpments and reptiles lots and lots of reptiles yeah and a lot of termites obviously feeding on those spin effects grasses and kind of driving that food chain up the well as well in some areas yeah so i mean in terms of actual particular places i would say the pilbara really stuck with me um, i only got to go to the pilbara sort of four or five times for work um, but it was just a magical place like on the east coast of australia if you're doing a reptile survey you know, if you do a week of pit trapping um, to catch reptiles, you could maybe hope to see 20 species. You know, that'd be a pretty good haul in terms of a species list for an area. Um, in the Pilbara, my very first trip I did in one week of trapping, we had 52 species of reptiles. Like, it's just incredible. And a lot more diversity and a lot more, uh, I guess, well, spin effects and rock adapted species, which are just always interesting. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't call it untouched with all the mining that's gone on there, but it really is one of our last wilderness areas in the country. You know, between the Pilbara, the Kimberley and Cape York, I think, you know, they're really our sort of last frontiers in terms of where the wildlife is really just generally intact compared to the rest of the country. Yeah, and fairly unknown as well. My understanding is that sort of Arnhem Land area kind of on the border between WA and Northern Territory is one of the least biologically surveyed parts of our country. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, I've been having a bit of a look at data for that northwest part of the country lately, and, uh, and it, it is extraordinarily under-surveyed. So um, I suspect there may well be new species to discover up that way. Very interesting, very interesting. Um, and uh, butterflies, uh, we, we should uh, get to our main topic of the day. How did you, how did you find yourself interested in butterflies uh, at first? Well, so I actually used to collect butterflies when I was about six years old. Right. Um, in fact, my, one of my mum's favourite stories was that in my first year of school, I had a deal with my teacher that I was only allowed to run out of the classroom with my butterfly net if it was, <laughs> if it was a really good butterfly and if I brought it back and showed the rest of the class. <laughs> so, you, yeah, you couldn't just take it home and put it in your collection. You had to... Yeah, so it's, it back. it's been a lifelong passion, I guess. But, um, you know, after after a few years of collecting them, I guess I kind of had a, a bit of a personal epiphany that I didn't like the idea of killing things for my own benefit. Right. And having said that, I do definitely support the idea of collections in museums. And I think scientifically um, having voucher specimens um, are really important. But personally, you know, for my own personal amusement, I didn't see the point of it. Um, and, uh, and so I stopped. And I, I never stopped liking butterflies, but I definitely moved away. So, you know, I graduated from university and I went to birds, a bit of bird watching. When I started as a consultant, I moved into reptiles and frogs. Um, and butterflies was kind of almost an accident. So, um, like I said, I maintained a general interest. And as a photographer, I was out there photographing things. And when I saw a butterfly, I'd photograph it. Um, and it really wasn't until, um, I think it was 2012, um, I was out with some friends, um, my wife and I were visiting, uh, friends up in Darwin and they were house sitting on the Cox Peninsula, which is 
just directly across the harbour from Darwin. So it's like an hour and a half by road to get there or like 20 minutes by boat. Um, so it's, you know, relatively um, difficult to get to unless you have a particular reason to be there. But they were house sitting and so we went over there to stay with them for a couple of nights and we're walking around and I saw this orange butterfly flitting around and I said, that's not in the book. I'm, I'm really sure that's, that's not in the book. I don't know what it is, but anyway, my friends were like, no, that's, you know, that's rubbish. You don't know anything about butterflies. <laughs> so I took these photographs and Did I you take that them. as a challenge. Well, <laughs> I was pretty confident. Like, you know, I, I, I hadn't spent a lot of time looking at butterflies at this point since I was a kid, but I was, I'm pretty good remembering things in general and I was pretty confident. Um, so I sent these photos off to Michael Braby, who, um, is the author of the, one of the, the better field guides on butterflies in Australia. And, um, Michael apparently later confessed to me that he thought it was a hoax because he saw these pictures, um, and went, well, this is not from Australia. Um, oh. Somebody's taken a picture off the internet and pretending that they've seen it in Australia. <laughs> Um, flat out did not believe you. So I just heard nothing back for a couple of weeks. And then I got this email from, from Michael saying, I think I just found your butterfly. Um, and so that started a correspondence and, you know, I sort of said, well, you know, I've been looking and I think that this is a species called, um, the tawny costa. Um, but it doesn't really make sense because it's a species that's only found in Sri Lanka and the near coast of India. Um, to Sri Lanka. So it wasn't a species that was particularly likely to turn up in Australia. <laughs> so, you know, I was second guessing myself thinking, well, you know, but there's, there's a handful of species that look like this, a few in Africa. And, um, but the Tawny Costa was the one that was closest to Australia based on the field guides. And Michael said, look, I think you're right. Um, but he managed to catch some and he, he did the sort of the back, the background work, you know, looking at museum specimens and, and working it out. And eventually we proved that it was a Tawny Costa. And in the meantime, I'd found these pictures on Google of people having photographed this species in Malaysia, in, in Vietnam, in Indonesia, and finally in Timor. And wow. then they turned up in Australia. And so we were actually able to use this Google image search to track the spread of this butterfly through Asia to reach Australia. Was it, was it a distributional spread or is that part of their migration route? No, no, it was a distributional spread, possibly climate change related. We're not really 100% sure of why wow. it's suddenly broken out from its subcontinental distribution, but we we're able to track on a sort of on a timeline as it reached these different countries. and Via the, Google Images and people taking photos? Just ad hoc, these um, amateur photographers who were just putting their images up and correctly identifying the species, yeah, wow. I might add, that wasn't meant to occur in their country <laughs> and putting these images on Google. We were so able you weren't to, the only one. Right. But we were able to track <laughs> the timeline of it spreading through Asia until it finally reached Australia. And I was the first person who was lucky enough to see it here. That's, that's fascinating. Um, and the biology of the species actually encouraged that kind of analysis in terms of when it reaches a new area, it just explodes in numbers. Like you'll see thousands or even tens of thousands for a few weeks to a couple of months. And then they'll die back to being very low numbers in the, in the ecosystem. So I was in Darwin uh, late or early 2019 and um, was able to sort of, uh, it was my first time revisiting Darwin since this, this point. And I was able to see Tony Costas again, but only like maybe one or two in a hectare compared to the first time I saw them, there was, you know, 50 or so. Right. 
And obviously having that big reproductive burst is great for something which is uh, being introduced to somewhere in little bottlenecks or small amounts of population. It's great for the species in terms of it being able to spread well, yes. but it's also really great for detectability. So if you're going to try and track the spread of a species, particularly uh, post hoc like this was, um, you know, you want it to be big numbers. So the chances of somebody coming across it were high. Was there any chance of it being uh, uh, an invader or maybe being transferred in, in agricultural equipment, in plants or, or people actually spreading it somehow? We, we definitely considered that. Um, we ended up rejecting that based on the fact that we we're able to show that it had, it had occurred in these different countries. A nice slow gradient moving through. Exactly. Um, there was a, um, there was a thought that they might be a crop pest on Asian um, cucumids things like cucumbers and the bitter gourds and um, winter melons and things like that. Right. And uh, so Michael at the time was uh, working with quarantine in the Northern Territory. So he at least was in the right place at the right time to test that theory. And he actually captured a number and raised them on uh, local crops and was able to show that they weren't a significant crop pest for Australia. Whether if they had been, we would have been able to do anything to stop the spread, I guess, is another question. Um, you know, at the time that I found them, there might have been some possibility of doing that. But two weeks later, um, when they were occurring 150 kilometers from there, it may well have already been too late. That's a fast moving front. Mm. All right. Well, look, we should do a little, uh, little bit of butterfly background, um, for our audience here and, uh, pull me up and correct me anytime I'm wrong, which is, which is frequently. So obviously they're, uh, they're an arthropod, they're an invertebrate uh, in the class insector. Uh, the order Lepidoptera for scaly wings. Uh, and that includes the butterflies and moths, which is there's, uh, not too much difference. We, we, moths are generally nocturnal. We'll get into some of the differences in butterflies and moths uh, a little bit later. Butterflies uh, themselves, uh, as fossils, first appeared in the Paleocene around uh, 56 million years ago. Uh, they are a sister clade to the Trichoptera, which is the caddisflies, more distantly related to the Diptera, the uh, true flies. Uh, and they are systematically challenging. About uh, 120 families or more in the Lepidoptera. Um, some 45 superfamilies or more historically in five suborders, but a lot of disagreement among different taxonomists. Is, is that correct? Uh, yeah, it sounds pretty uh, like a pretty good summary. Um, there's recently been a tree of life put together for butterflies around the, around the globe. Um, and there's also a project in um, the Northern Hemisphere. Um, and I just can't off the top of my head remember who's running it, but they're actually looking to get genetic samples of as many species as possible. And they're actually looking to essentially do a phylogenetic tree. Um, so to redo the phylogenetic tree and actually barcode um, as many species as they possibly can. So barcoding is where you don't just use specific gene sequences to look at the relationships between species, but you actually do the whole of the genome of the species. Wow. So they're doing whole genome barcodes. Yeah. For as many species as they possibly can. It's an enormous project. Wow. That is uh, huge. So, uh, and again, massive amounts of diversity there for them to, to kind of sort out. The Lepidoptera are one of the four most speciose orders in the world of, of organisms. So that's next to, uh, or along with the Hymenoptera, which is the wasps, bees, and ants, uh, the Diptera, the flies, as we mentioned, and the Coleoptera, which is the beetles. They have scaled wings, head and body, membranous wings, uh, with few exceptions, with reduced wings or wingless. They're uh, holometabolous, so they go through a complete metamorphic phase from caterpillar larvae with a head and mandibles and three pairs of thoracic legs and uh, zero to five pairs of proto legs. A series of larval instars which develops into a pupa, 
and some butterflies and many moths encase in a silk cocoon prior to pupating. And uh, some of them also pupate underground. Uh, the butterfly pupa, also known as the chrysalis, has a hard skin for protection during the metamorphosis stage and their sexually mature adult butterflies emerge from there. So butterflies and moths, a uh, bit of a difficult distinction. That, that said, you know, I, I do love my moths and one of my favorite animals here, as far as the Lepidoptera, is the giant wood moth, uh, Endozyla cinera. I'm not even sure if I'm pronouncing that right. Sounds about right. <laughs> <laughs> Which is in Australia and New Zealand and uh, it's a giant uh, brownish wood moth, nocturnal, but grows to about 30 grams. So it's about like, it's kind of the size of a small bird. Oh, there are many birds that are much less heavy than that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, so fine. It's a sign of a, a decent, like moderately sized small bird um, and occurs both here and, and, uh, and in New Zealand. So uh, I guess uh, what is a moth and what is a butterfly? So that's actually a surprisingly difficult question to answer. So, I mean, people, when they think butterflies, they think large and colorful out during the day. If you may be a little bit more technically minded, you might know that they're meant to have clubbed antennae. Whereas feathery antennae are more common on the moths. Correct. correct. Now, those are all helpful guides. However, they're all wrong. Um, <laughs> so butterflies are not even predominantly large and colorful. In Australia, we have the majority of our species are in the Lycaenidae, uh, which we call the blues, but they're more likely to be a sort of a small gray sort of thing, maybe with blue inner wings. And most people think of them as moths when they see them for the first time. We do have a number of Lycaenids which are much more colorful, um, you know, maybe reds and yellows and things like that. But uh, the predominant features of that group are that they're small and they're grayish blue. Um, and then we've also got the Hesperids, which are the skippers, um, which are predominantly browns and oranges, um, but very dull compared to what you think of when you think butterfly. We have a, a number of what we call day-flying moths in Australia um, and, and around the world, of course, um, many of which are brightly coloured. There are moths which have clubbed antennae. <laughs> um, not many, but there are some. Yeah. Um, there's so, always some that break the rules and make taxonomy difficult, isn't there? And there's a really good reason for that um, because you can't separate butterflies from moths. So when you look um, phylogenetically at the moth and butterfly family tree, butterflies actually sit completely internally to the moth family. Right. So the, in terms of the, the order of evolution, there are moths on either side of them. Um, so it's re you can't really separate them out. So in terms of what is a butterfly and what is a moth, it's almost an artificial, it's almost an artificial <laughs> distinction. Butterflies are sort of a type of moth, yeah. if, you, if you will. Um, Every, everything is a moth, one might say. But in terms of our perspective, there are essentially, in Australia, there's six families. So you've got the skippers, which is the Hesperidae. You've got the, um, the swallowtails, which are the big, brightly colored things that most people think about, which is Papillionidae. Uh, you've got the yellows and whites, which is things like your um, your lemon migrants, which are a super common butterfly around the country. The little grass yellows, um, things like your caper whites, which people see big numbers of them moving through parts of the country at times. Um, and the, so the, that's the Pieridae. Um, you've got the Nymphalidae, which is also called the brush-footed butterflies, and that's kind of a grab bag. You know, that you can't really give one particular characteristic to that group. You've got black ones and blue ones and brown ones and yellow ones, and so they're all a bit over the all over the place. Is that a bit something that what we might refer to as a bin taxon? Is it maybe a little bit mixed up? It might need well, a bit more work. I mean, genetically, no, probably not. They're, not really. I think they've been fairly well covered genetically. Um, I don't. 
I don't think at this stage they're likely to be split out. I mean, obviously, as you mentioned, there's lots of super families and tribes and super tribes and things like that. So they have been divvied up further, but not at that species. Um, it's not at that family level. Um, and then we've got the Rio Dinner Day, which is the metal marks. And we only have one of those in Australia, which is on Cape York. So most people will never see that in their lifetime. Oh, wow. Um, I hope to one day be able to go back and look for it. I've been to Cape York a number of times, but never to look for butterflies. So No success. I just didn't know at the time. You know, I, this was all pre my reignition of my interest oh, in may butterflies. Have flitted through your visual field at one point. And, and finally, we've got the Lysina Day, which is the blues. Um, and so that gives us about 440 species in Australia and that includes a number of things that have been vagrant from Papua New Guinea and from Indonesia. Right. Um, so I haven't actually ever sat down to add it up, but I think it leaves us with about 420 species that are regular migrants or breeding residents. Yeah, right. Fascinating. Um, I, I think there was 435 species in the 2016 edition of Michael Braby's book, uh, The Complete Field Guide to Butterflies of Australia, if anybody does want to have a look. Um, I guess in terms of species and diversity, is there is there any hotspots for new species in Australia or species diversity and uh, what are we missing? Well, so, I mean, in terms of the hotspots of diversity, obviously the north of Australia is quite high. Um, that Cape York area, and I imagine. So we really have two, I guess, broad lineages of butterflies in Australia. You've got the tropical butterflies, things that we tend to share with Asia, Um and in fact, there's even some species that occur all the way up into Europe as well. Right. Um, there are, and then there are the species which I guess were sort of probably Gondwanan in origin, and they tend to be more in the south of the country, prefer the colder climates, and they're they're endemic. They're completely unique to Australia. They don't even share history with the northern hemisphere um, at all. So there's much fewer of those. Um, Seventy percent of our butterfly diversity is in the north of Queensland. Wow! So the wet tropics and the Cape York Peninsula have most of our butterfly species. There are other hotspots, sort of the Kimberley and the Northern Territory, are also uh, quite prolific in terms of butterfly species. In terms of new species, though, um, there's a lot of what we call um, hidden diversity, cryptic diversity, cryptic diversity um, uh, in our. Um, in our species that, uh, so there's, it's really rare to discover a genuinely new species, um, of butterfly. You know, it's been pretty well surveyed through the, uh, the amateur collectors and the museums. Um, and then the professionals have also been out there doing their thing. And, you know, so we've got a pretty good handle on Australia's butterfly diversity, but as genetic techniques become better refined and more affordable, and the affordability is actually key because there's not a lot of funding to do work on insects in yeah. Australia. So, yeah. um, but as, as these, um, sort of next gen sequencing techniques for genetic analysis come in and become more, more affordable to do, um, they're able to do a lot more looking at this cryptic diversity, um, and uh, I know from speaking with Michael Braby that uh, he's working on a number of papers at the moment to split out new species from existing species. Um, and things that are not visibly different, um, as we're seeing with reptiles, you know, there's a lot of these um, clade species where, you know, tr traditional science and traditional um, uh, naming of species has struggled with anything that is not morphologically different, that you can't pin a particular feature on it um, as being different. So uh, we're looking at 
now a number of butterflies that if you're just going on looking at them in the field, you'd really struggle to call them a different species. But the genetics tell the story. And then when you look at their, their place in the landscape, so one of the species Michael mentioned, there's a population that's at altitude, so sort of above 600 metres, and there's a population that's coastal. They're separated by a few hundred kilometres. But, you know, compared to, you know, for a flying animal, you wouldn't expect that to be enough of a separation. But that altitudinal gradient is probably extreme enough that it has caused them to separate into two different species. But it's probably quite a recent divergence, which means that physically, vis visually, they look very similar to each other. Yeah, right. Fascinating. And uh, even, uh, you know, this uh, this last week, there was another, uh, you know, a similar situation with lizards here uh, in, in WA, the plethorax and um, I think one of the other geckos as well. So that's the javelin lizard and uh, and one of the, I forget the, uh, is it a nefurus? I don't remember. Nefurus I haven't, I haven't I seen think, the paper. I'm not sure. I think it was in WA. They, um, they elevated a few other things which were previously considered just different subspecies, but of the same species and similar enough. Um, and then the genetics showed that they were different species. So very, very common for that to happen in some of our cryptic species. And I imagine with butterflies being so diverse, and as you said, with some of the other groups like the blues, so similar, um, morphologically separating them out is going to be much more difficult than doing it with genetics. Absolutely. And I think that um, the other key point there is that, um, as I said, genetics is something that hasn't been rigorously applied to Australian butterflies yet. So I think as we get people out there and collecting samples and, and, and making use of the existing specimens in museums, I think you'll, you'll start to see a much more refined species tree in Australia for butterflies, and that will inevitably lead to more species being described. Yeah, for sure. Well, just in terms of collecting uh, butterflies and uh, species data, this isn't so much for genetics, but uh, let's, uh, let's talk about this new app. Uh, fascinating thing, uh, the Butterflies Australia app. You can check it out at butterflies.org.au. Um, it is a citizen science smartphone app for recording butterfly sightings and data. Um, wh when did you guys launch? It was just, uh, just last year, yes? Yeah, late October last year, we were uh, at the Shine Dome in Canberra, which is the sort of the home of the Australian Academy of Science, which was, it was nice to be able to go there and do something in such a prestigious venue. Yeah, nice. But uh, the, the response has just been overwhelming. Um, I've lost count of the number of radio interviews I've done. Um, you know, we've been in, in press. There was even a TV segment. So, you know, the, the response from the Australian public has been amazing. Um, within a couple of months, we'd had 2,000 downloads of the app across the two platforms. That's excellent. Um, and we've had our first 1,000 records submitted. So, you know, really exciting times. No worries. And um, it comes along with a free digital field guide to help people ID things as well as um, and uh, you guys were obviously involved in a lot of the development of this field guide, I imagine. Yeah. So, um, I mean, this is my baby, I guess you could, you could call it. So, um, we, we won a grant from the Australian government through the, uh, the department of, uh, let me get this right. Science, industry, innovation, and technology or industry, technology, and innovation, DeCity. I don't know what they're called now. I think they might've changed names recently. As they always do. Um, <laughs> But, you know, they were, uh, they were incredibly supportive. They did a one-off citizen science grant round. Um, and, uh, you know, we were given a, a pretty generous amount of money to put this project together. Um, and so, uh, you know, as a result of that, I was able to, um, to devote a lot of my time to putting together this field guide. And, you know, we've um, brought in images from a couple of really excellent uh, photographers um, uh, from around the country. And, uh, we've also had a number of generous people who've donated photographs as well. Um, and of course there's a lot of my photographs in there too at this point. And, um, 
you know, the, the field guides really a work in progress at this stage. Uh, you know, we've tried to cover every species we're almost there. There's a handful that we still don't have photographs for. Um, but you know, we intend to continue filling in the text. I think we've only got text for about half of the species at the moment. So we've got a number of people volunteering their time to, to write up a number of, a number of experts writing up the field guide entries. We'll gradually fill in, um, pictures of things like your caterpillar and pupae stages, um, and what I hope for is that in the end that this will be a resource that uh, is the first time we've ever collected all of the known stages of the life histories of all of Australia's butterflies. And I say known um, because there are a lot of butterflies here in Australia. We don't know what the larval stages look like. Right, um, right. They've never been recorded. Oh, wow. So that, that obviously makes things way more difficult with IDing these animals because they've got so many different stages of their life. They don't all look the same as they do. Um, when they're a child and an adult, they don't grow in that sort of more isometric fashion. That's right. Um, and I mean, there's an, like I said, there's a number of species we don't even know what the juvenile stages look like. There's, um, there's no current field guide which shows even the current state of knowledge. Um, although I believe that Gary Sankowski up in the wet tropics is in the process of publishing a book on the larval stages of butterflies in Australia. So I don't know what that's going to look like, but I'm really excited to see it. Yeah. But, you know, hopefully eventually the app that we have um, will, in the field guide, have um, collected together all of those larval stages that we know about, um, as many pictures as possible. Fascinating. Very, very cool. And uh, you guys have a, a lot of uh, features in development as well for um, visualizing the uh, and mapping some of the data. Is, is that correct? Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, again, it's a bit of a work in progress. So we, we, released, uh, we released the app in uh, the end of October last year. We've already had one update. And I've got the developers um, improving a number of those features now. You know, we've had requests to be able to view um, particular records, single records on a map um, against the uh, the rest of the survey um, that uh, currently you can only really search on individual species um, rather than being able to look at um, a particular survey from a particular person on the map. Right. So that'll be one of the next things. And that'll be really helpful to our moderators as well, because when somebody submits a record, they'll be able to see the record on a map rather than having to um, try and imagine where that is based on the locality information. Yeah. Okay. And then I guess in future, a lot of that um, seasonality and timing with those different locations will be, um, will be useful. Yeah. And look, hopefully, um, hopefully down the track, uh, at the moment, you know, the grant that we have ends at the end of June this year. Um, and my, my hope is that this will be something that we can pass on to an NGO to, to run in perpetuity. I think that there's a lot, there's been a lot of public support. And I think that, uh, if somebody were to take it on and to open the doors for donations, um, you know, sell merchandise, things like that. I think it would be very much a self-sustaining project. Yeah, that ball will keep rolling once it gets out. Now it gets a bit of momentum. So that's my hope. And, you know, there's obviously the ability to write, write in for more grants and things like that. But I would love to see the features just continue to improve over time. You know, we've got a little bit of money left to do that at the moment. And we'll aim by the end of June to have it in as good a state as we possibly can. But I'd love to see this project continue for the foreseeable future. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's a great amount of data. It's a great way to collect data and whatever you can do with the features and mapping um, in the future to help conservation could be uh, quite valuable. Yeah, I mean, and, and more than that. And I mean, as somebody who's got a pretty solid background in citizen science, um, one of the things they really hammer home in that field is you can't just take as a researcher, you know, there's there's a real temptation as a researcher to think about what people can do for you right. and your research. But 
if you act like that in citizen science, um, people kind of lose interest over time. Um, Makes sense. Just because they're not a trained scientist doesn't mean, mean people can't sort of sniff out somebody who's being very self-serving. <laughs> <laughs> so what you do has to give back to those people. And what I'd love to see with the Butterfly Project is people essentially becoming butterfly watchers in the same way that people are bird watchers now. And yeah, right. one of the really valuable things that we took away from what I would arguably say is one of the most successful citizen science projects of all time, which is the eBird project from Cornell University. In March last year, they recorded their 500 millionth record. Wow. In 15 years. That's I mean, that's incredible. an extraordinary result. And that's a global thing. Um, and obviously based in the US, they've had a lot of support from the Americas, um, Canada and the US in particular. Um, so, you know, that, and birdwatching is obviously a hugely um, popular hobby to begin with. Um, and there's many, um, many more bird species um, that are easy to identify and easy to find. So there's lots of reasons why they've been successful. But I think the thing that really set eBird apart from uh, things like the, uh, the BirdLife Australia uh, bird data project um, was that they really gave back to the users. They saw that what people wanted was to record lists. So they took the hobby that was birdwatching and didn't try and make it about the science. They made it about the supporting of the birdwatching. And the listing then contributed to the research almost in an incidental way. Yeah, right. So people could go about their birdwatching in the way that they were already doing it and also contribute to science without doing pretty much anything different to what they were already doing. And out of that, they also got the ability to look at all of their lists on a computer, on a map, start to look at it by month or by site. Um, you know, nowadays, if I want to look for a bird, if I'm going, say, so I went to Canada last year um, and I was up in Vancouver Island and I managed to get out on a boat and I wanted to know what birds I might see on a boat off Vancouver Island, you know, one of the more remote parts of the world. But you can just look up the records and maps and see I what just, has been. Yeah. I just looked at eBird. I said, show me all the birds seen at this time of year in this area. And I got a list of all the birds that I might see. And I saw almost all of those birds. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a good way to set yourself a little birding or butterfly challenge in the future, I imagine. As well. and, and it was a good way to get excited too, you know, because um, I was like, I might be able to see tufted puffin, which I did. And, you know, puffins are an amazing bird group. Um, really hard to see most of the species um, with the exception of Atlantic puffin, which is obviously the famous one that everyone knows from the book covers. And, and you know, they breed in big numbers, you know, in islands off Britain. And so they're relatively easy to get to um, compared to most species. But to see something like a tufted puffin, you have to put in a bit more effort. So, and, and I think that that's transferable to things like butterflies. They're highly seasonal. So there are some species where the adults only fly for about a month every year. And they're really site faithful. So if their host plant doesn't occur there, they're probably not going to be seen. So with some of these butterfly species, if you want to, if you want to see a particular species, this will eventually be a resource where you can say, show me all the sites for this particular species, um, Trapezoides mahata. Um, show me them for the month of November. Um, show me them for the month of November in 2019 because then I'll know for absolutely sure that it's occurred in that site recently. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we don't have the data to do that yet. Uh, but eventually, I think, you know, if enough people take this up, we'll have that body of data there for amateur enthusiasts to go out and specifically look for things. And also for, for, and also for professionals, you know, this is going to be a research tool as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think it's going to be great because, you know, obviously, you're, as you mentioned, you're not only serving the scientific community, 
but you're also serving the public, which uh, you know, and and out of it you get um, conservation outcomes, which is uh, well, desirable for people who want to keep seeing butterflies. That's for sure. Yeah, and I mean that really speaks to the reason we started the project. I mean, um, we don't have any proper range maps for butterflies in Australia, and I and I say that advisedly. Um, obviously, uh, books like Michael Braby's Complete Field Guide to the Butterflies of Australia has range maps in it. But um, Michael drew them by hand based on his expert knowledge and based on input from other people. But they're hand-drawn. It's on not a, like a mathematical minimum convex polygon based off distributional data or something. That's like that. right. So, you know, it's a hand-drawn map um, on an A4 piece of paper. Um, and it's it's kind of like a best guess. You know, it's fantastic to have them and that's actually... And still valuable. Right. And what we have in the field guide as our range maps is based on that. Right. Um it's the best available tool that we have currently. And we could improve on that. But we will improve on that. Just by starting to collect a national data set, we will be able to produce the first data-driven range maps for butterflies. Fantastic. That in itself is an amazing start to doing better research on butterflies. That's a huge step forward. And, and we should um, you know, talk, I guess, about some of the risks and conservation issues that our, our butterflies are facing, um, which obviously going to be more and more. Um, with climate change. Here in Brisbane, obviously, we've got the Richmond birdwing butterfly, um, uh, Ornithoptera richmondia, uh, the uh, largest subtropical subtropical butterfly in Australia. Um, And much of its habitat has been lost to grazing agriculture um, from Maribyrnong through to southeast Queensland down to Grafton in northern New South Wales. Um, The caterpillars uh, feed on (laughs) two vine species, Uh, one of them known as the Richmond Richmond birdwing vine, uh, Pararistoptera. Aristolochia prevenosa. <laughs> so it's Pararistolochia or Parastolochia prevenosa. Wow, I was way off. Uh, <laughs> and the mountain Aristolochia, uh, Pararistolochia uh, Lahayana. I'd say it's Lahayana. Lahayana. I imagine okay. it's based on a surname from somebody. Yeah, okay. And both of these plants have been uh, in uh, decline since the 1900s uh, until uh, planting programs came about. Um, and... Uh, Is there a lot of species that have such direct relationships or or more of our butterflies are likely to be generalists? Most of our butterflies fall somewhere on that gradient (laughs) (laughs) is probably the best way of putting it. We do have a nice normal bell curve from one to the other. We do have a lot of butterflies that are extraordinarily generalistic um, that have, you know, 50 to 100 or more host plant species. Right. Um, And obviously... You could hit them with just about anything you wanted, nuclear weapons, whatever, and they'd probably <laughs> they'd probably persist. Right. Um, but we also have a huge number of species which are single or only a handful of host plants, and they're obviously much more vulnerable to land clearing, to weed invasion, fire regime change, things like that. So those are the sorts of species that are on the edge now already. Is there any particular species or species groups or genre that that you know of that are particularly at risk currently? It seems to be sort of hodgepodge. Um, there's no there's no sort of clades of species that are all threatened. Um, and that's probably because the, uh, the, the species which are in clades tend to be geographically separated. Yeah, right. Um, and the threats to species tend to be very um, regional, uh, very compartmentalised. So obviously land clearing is more coastal, um, fire is more northerly, till this year (laughs) (laughs) um 
and um, and you know weed invasion tends to be much more closely centered around human habitation. Right. So um, so while there's not really a particular group of butterflies that you could say are more threatened than others, there's um, life history traits that are more threatened than others. So species which are quite range restricted, species that have a single host plant, species that are really um, centered around a particular habitat type that might be quite heavily cleared. So the birdwing is a good example of some of those. Um, so Rich- Richmond birdwing is a species which typically um, was reliant on lowland tropical rain, lowland subtropical rainforest um, from northern New South Wales up to almost central Queensland. Um, so that lowland subtropical rainforest is one of the most highly cleared um types of habitat in the country right uh we've lost well over 90 percent of it i i think um so like most other uh, other taxa habitat loss remains one of the biggest issues absolutely so you know you can point fingers at the invasive species the dutchman's pipe which is an aristolochia quite quite closely related to the other host plants but it's an invasive invasive vine grows in rainforest quite well but the caterpillars of the bird wings die when they eat it yeah right and that was sort of pinpointed as the reason for them being threatened but realistically it was actually the fact they lost 90 percent of their habitat to in, agriculture you know, or in 100 or years yeah. and actually the bird wing is a, an interesting success story and there's two factors that seem to be at play here the first is obviously the the control of the dutchman's pipe and also the the planting of the host plants, which, by the way, take about 15 years to reach enough maturity to host caterpillars. Right. So that's been a big lag waiting for that planting project to really come of age. The other thing seems to be climate change might be giving them a helping hand because typically what would happen in the life history of this species would they breed up in big numbers in the lowlands and then in summer they'd move up into the highlands, um, into the sort of the upland rainforest around the Lamington National Park and they'd breed up some more and then they'd return to the lowlands. Um, but all of the ones that were up high would die when it reached winter. But the last few years, there have been big explosions of, um, of Richmond birdwings up at altitude in that uh, Lamington Plateau and uh, the, the Wollombin Crater around Mount Warning um, in the highland areas around there. And it looks like they're not dying off in winter anymore. Wow. So that's probably been giving them a leg up because the the Dutchman's pipe isn't as prevalent in those high altitude areas. So plenty of host plants left, not as many things that the caterpillars are dying when they eat and they're not getting killed off by winter anymore, it would seem. That's not something that's been published on, but it seems to be what's going on. So if that is the case, you know, it might be an example of where climate change is actually benefiting a threatened species. Yeah, interesting, which which definitely can happen, but uh, obviously until those lowland subtropicals start drying out because it gets too hot. Right. If it all, <laughs> if it all burns down, then uh, then it's game over. But, yeah. Uh, and uh, I guess is, a, a, have you, is there going to be many changes? Uh, and I guess it's probably more of an educated... Uh, guess or estimation whether or not the changing of like the phenology and timing of flowering um, just with heat and desiccation is going to be an issue I'd love to be able to answer that question but the fact is we don't have the data yeah we really don't know Um, and that's kind of part of what this project is about you know right now we're just sort of hoping to collect some basic data to answer some basic questions about where species occur and whether their population trends are going up or down we might be able to look at um the changing envelopes of where species occur. So we expect, obviously, species are going to be expanding southward with climate change. Yeah. And we're actually seeing that. Um, you know, it's been documented in a number of species already. And I think we'll get more of that as time goes by. 
Um, we've already had two documented range extensions as a result of this project. One of which I'm told was actually known about, but not published on. Oh, right. <laughs> um, but the other one is a genuinely new range extension, which is, uh, which is quite exciting. And I expect to see a lot more of that. Yeah. Right. Probably going to be yeah, more of that in the coming years with more climate change. And, uh, I guess we should wrap back around to these fires, um, particularly in the blue mountain area and, um, on the East coast, there's been so much rainforest lost, um, uh, and stuff that hasn't really burnt for a uh, long time, you know, eons, uh, like really like geological time in our history, this rainforest hasn't burnt. Is there a lot of rainforest species in those areas that you that you know of that would be at risk after after the amount of fire this this last summer? Um, well, I mean, your point about geological history is quite um, quite pertinent because it looks like it's possible that the uh, Wollamai pine grove might have burnt down. Yeah, um, yeah. And that's a species which was only known from the fossil record. So tragic. Until it was rediscovered. So that's, you know, possibly, you know, 20 million years that this grove had gone unburnt. Is there butterflies associated with Wollamai pine that you know of? Not that I'm aware of. I don't believe there would be. Um, maybe a moth. Yeah. Um, there might be spiders. <laughs> could well be spiders. Um, but... Um, What's really concerning is the alpine areas burning. Um, we have a number of alpine adapted species. Um, and I talked earlier about those, um, those old Gondwanan lineages of butterflies, which are very typically Australian, not shared with anywhere else in the world. Uh, those were the southern lineages, which might be more affected in these Victorian fires? Um, that's right. And the, the, the ACT um, New South Wales fires, so that, um, the ones at Jindabyne, etc. Right. So there's subspecies of alpine adapted butterflies, which are almost certainly completely wiped out. They don't have a subterranean and underground stage in their life history. So there's not really anywhere for them to hide. And these are not habitats that are meant to burn regularly and they're not meant to burn at the scale that they've been burning at. Yeah, right. So um, it's it's just going to be one of these, I think, sad stories as climate change continues and as we get moved from this sort of, I guess, historically traditional Aboriginal patch-burning mosaic to a much more broad scale, ubiquitous fire landscape where there's big hot burns at the wrong time of year that just don't stop at fire lines. Um, and that's not something that really any species that doesn't go underground can adapt to. Even the species that go underground, if they emerge after that fire, they've got nothing to emerge to. Well, resources have definitely been changed. Some things will do all right. The goannas will probably be <laughs> fairly happy kind of roaming and scavenging for roasted animals in the in the aftermath. But uh... Absolutely. And there'll be some butterflies that actually do very well out of this. So um, it's kind of ironic. Like most species, butterflies are actually dependent on fire to some degree. So butterflies are... Um, a cohesive unit with their host plants and they rely on their host plants not just being there but having fresh growth the caterpillars almost exclusively eat the new growth of their plants that are hosts and if anybody's been through a post-fire area in, um, in australia you'll see a lot of new growth well it's all new growth generally because the, co the kinds of plants that they eat are often undergrowth or mid-story plants so they're the ones that get burnt um, back to the roots and they grow back from the roots or from the seed bank um, but more to the point, a lot of those species senesce after sort of five to 10 years. Um, senescing is when they've essentially stopped growing. They might occasionally still fruit, although often much less than a, a healthy adult plant would. Um, so you end up with this situation where butterflies drop out of these long unburnt patches of habitat and then they'll recolonize after fire. 
as long as they have somewhere to recolonize from, which they won't if the fire's big enough. But um, so that means that a lot of these places that were not burnt for 10, 15 years probably had a lot of these very um, host-specific species drop out of them and uh, they'll hopefully be recolonizing from the refugia after the fire yeah. um, goes out. As long as there's enough refugia, right? Exactly. <sighs> Challenges, uh, solutions? <laughs> oh, it would be nice to see uh, some uh, some leadership on the climate change issue. I think that, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a dad and uh, I'd like to see my, my son inherit a world that... Uh, that still has some of these threatened species that are right on the edge. Um, but I have, you know, I have uh, a sinking feeling that um, even if we start acting now, uh, we're going to lose a lot of this stuff. Um, you know, things like Kangaroo Island Dunnet looks like it might be gone. Um, you know, maybe Wallamai Pine might be functionally extinct now, apart from the ones that are in people's gardens. Um, and, you know, there's, there's hundreds more. Um, and, you know, like I said, there's probably a dozen butterfly subspecies or populations which are now disappeared in one fire incident. Um, and if that gets repeated a few more times, you'll, you know, that, that toll will only rise. And it's likely to happen unless we see some action. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, look, on that uh, bright and sunny note, let's uh, <laughs> move on to new research because I think we have to uh, wrap up and get you out of here soon. How does that sound? Yeah, sounds great. All right. No worries, guys. We've only got uh, two quick research segments to, uh, to get to. Um, I'm going to start with the second one because it's, uh, it's relevant. Uh, incorporating temperature and precipitation extremes into process-based models at, at in, of African Lepidoptera changes the predicted distribution under climate change. This is from uh, Ecological Modeling 394, 2019. That's Barton et al. 2019. Um, so terrestrial insects are already responding to climate change. Um, it's been linked to rising temperatures. Uh, they are sensitive also to desiccation and the impacts of altered precipitation regimes are relatively unexplored. Uh, the authors here uh, aim to develop a mechanistic model of the survival and performance responses uh, to temperature and desiccation, desiccation stress, desiccation means drying out, obviously, uh, in African Lepidoptera, where a general understanding of such responses of climate change is urgently required. So they used uh, in their methods the general circulation climate models and they took daily time intervals under both current and projected climate scenarios, projected up to, I think, 2050. Uh, yeah, 2046 to 2050. Uh, they first simulated four hypothetical but ecologically typical Lepidoptera that vary in their thermal tolerance and developmental physiology. Uh, this is done based off uh, known uh, previous publications and data on uh, the Lepidoptera from Africa. And they then add constraint on survival due to desiccation, uh, which they're going to obviously uh, run against those uh, models. Uh, they also test the role of temperature and desiccation resistance in occupancies and population performances of hollow metabolous pest insects in Africa, uh, the extent to which predicted changes in these environmental parameters will affect the occupancy and population performances. Um, and they validate the model predictions with published data from two African lepidopterans, an African pest, uh, sorry, an African agricultural pest, that's uh, Busiola fusca? Busiola fusca? I think so. And a well-studied butterfly, uh, Bicyclus aninana. I'm terrible at these. <laughs> so including desiccation stress uh, led to a 68% decline in the species range. 
uh, in comparison to simulations where only species mortality due to temperature is considered. Uh, furthermore, in response to predicted changes in both temperature and rainfall, species performances and survival are expected to change in a non-uniform manner across the landscape. Species range shifts towards coastal regions and into higher latitudes in the southern but northern hemispheres. Uh, found, they also found that the model agrees well with their surveyed empirical distributions, but uh, note that the model fails to account for range expansion due to water availability unrelated to rainfall. So from things like, you know, irrigation and uh, basically, yeah, human activities. Uh, nonetheless, these final simulations show how the model can be readily applied to insects for which baseline physiological data already exists or for which appropriate data can be gathered, thereby providing a useful framework with which to explore species responses to future changes in temperatures and precipitation. Do we have uh, any of that kind of like physiological information in Australian butterflies? I'd say, well, to be honest, I'm, that's a little out of my field of expertise. I'm more of a field biologist rather than a physiologist, but I don't think so. I'd very much doubt that that's, except for maybe some pest species yeah. where people are looking at ways of controlling them. Um, I would imagine that's not something that's been done. I mean, I read this paper and um, my first thought was kind of, well, duh. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, climate change is going to move species yeah, and, and it's not just temperature related. Yeah. But I, I think that the thing is, and they didn't mention it in the paper, and I was a little disappointed by that, I, I suspect that it's not just the individual physiology of the animal at play here. Uh, I think that you'll look at the plant hosts um, yeah. and as the climate envelope and the available water in the landscape changes, plant hosts are going to do different things. Yeah. So um, the suitable plant is not going to be there. So it'll either thrive or it will um, wilt um, as, a, as you know, the water availability changes, you know, right. it'll be okay or it won't. So I, I think that that's probably a confounding factor of their analysis that they probably needed to look at the impact of that on the host plants as well as on the insects. Yeah. Right. They could go in either direction, right? Like, um, they might suffer more from uh, increased temperatures due to desiccation and temperature stress, but if their host plant thrives really, really well, it might kind of cancel out a little bit. Right. And I mean, if you look at Australia's butterflies that have to deal with the monsoon tropics, uh, you know, where it regularly gets into the high 40s in summer and, um, you know, water's not the issue there, but temperature definitely is. But um, then we've also got arid adapted species that, you know, live in Alice Springs in the, the West McDonald Ranges. And, um, you know, they're not seen flying for many years and then it'll rain and they'll suddenly emerge. So I think that it's possible to adapt to these things and maybe even quite quickly. I mean, every time someone says, oh, you know, species can't adapt to rapid changes in the environment, some species proves you wrong. Yeah. So I think that, um, you know, you've got to look more at, you know, whether the species is likely to seek refugia in the landscape. So um, in northern Australia, when it gets really hot, butterflies go to rocky gorges and sit above permanent water on cliff faces where there's sense. breeze, it's cooler in the landscape because there's evaporation. So, you know, it makes perfect sense. You know, it's what you would do if you were a, <laughs> a human in that environment. You'd go to where there's water and you'd sit in the water. Yeah, you chase waterfalls <laughs> a little bit during the middle of the day and then back to work in the afternoon. Exactly. So, you know, the animals do that too. And that's not really a huge surprise to anybody who works in conservation biology, I suspect. Right, right. Wonderful. All right, let's move on to uh, Hable et al. 2019. Butterflies in corridors. Quality matters for specialists. This is uh, insect conservation and diversity. Um, so agricultural landscapes um, 
and the homogenization uh, that they cause has had some caused some severe losses to insects across Europe, uh, to not, well, not just insects but a lot of other uh, other animals as well. And populations in general exist in small and isolated patches or fragments. There's a need to increase landscape permeability for exchange of individuals and of genes, minimizing inbreeding depression and hopefully promoting long-term persistence in these populations. So one of those ways to do that is with suitable habitat corridors for connectivity between fragments. But whether and how species use those corridors depends on species ecology and the corridor quality itself. Uh, in this paper, the authors analyzed, analyzed behavior of butterflies with different ecological specialization in different quality grassland corridors. They had uh, three hypotheses uh, that they were looking at. Um, butterflies rarely leave high quality corridors compared to low quality corridors. More specialized species are less likely to leave a corridor, especially a high quality corridor. And behavior in the corridor strongly depends on the quality and ecological specialization. The third one kind of ties back into everything, doesn't it? Um, so their methods were fairly simple. In a high quality calcareous grassland, they caught 753 uh, of uh, individuals from five species in the subfamily Saturnae. Uh, so they caught the Ceonynympha pamphilus, Ceonynympha arcania, Maniola gertina, Melangaria, Galathea and Arabia Medusa. Probably got those all wrong. Range specialists and uh, ranging from uh, specialists to generalists and ranging from fairly sedentary to fairly mobile. Uh, their behavior in the original habitat in the, and in uh, two grassland corridors of differing quality was assessed uh, as well as in uh, the uh, adjoining arable field uh, of like uh, agricultural matrix around them. They uh, basically observed the butterflies from 10 meters away and dropped little markers, which they would then go back later um, and GPS. So every 20 seconds, drop a little marker total of five minutes recording time, go back and GPS tag those little, little markers. From, those, uh, from that data, they recorded the total flight distance, direction, speed, visitation to flowers, roosting, uh, the uh, number of movements from corridor to matrix, the number of movements from matrix to corridor, and they used generalized linear modeling and nested random effects ANOVA to relate the count data as a response variable to species membership and ecological speciation, sex, and age. Uh, on to results. The more frequent and longer flights uh, seem to happen in the arable fields, uh, in the agricultural matrix, I guess. Uh, more range-restricted behavior with perching and visiting of flowers in corridors and in the original habitat. Uh, specialists rarely leave from corridor to the agricultural matrix compared to generalists, as one would expect. Uh, relative uh, difference in the probability of leaving a corridor was more pronounced between corridor qualities for specialists. And in conclusion, high quality corridors uh, with many flowering plants, for example, su support higher species and population persistence. Uh, specialist species especially respond to corridor quality, such as the availability of flowers or calcareous grassland-like species composition. Um, so this was basically what we were talking about, right? Um, that uh, habitat quality is going to be super important for uh, specialists, whereas generalists will be a little bit more uh, immune to it. Yeah, look, absolutely. I... <clears throat> I, I was I was quite interested in this paper. Um, I would have liked to have seen them include in their analysis something around the wing shapes of the butterflies because I suspect that there's an extra part of that story that um, <clears throat> those generalists may be more adapted to movement. Right. So it might not just be that they're habitat faithful. It might be that they're, you know... Good dispersers. That they're morphologically disposed to not moving, right. um, if that makes sense. Good or bad dispersers, yeah. Yeah, right. that's right. So... 
That that aside, it's an interesting paper. Um, the thing that really stuck with me from it was them talking about the idea that corridors can be um, ecological traps, um, that these butterflies will move along the corridor and end up in a landscape that's being sprayed for pests by right, farmers. Right. My first thought when I read that was, who's building a corridor that leads to a death trap? That seems <laughs> like a really bad idea. <laughs> Oh, it's it's like having those uh, you know those road crossing ladders, but in the middle there's just a pitfall. <laughs> yeah, or you know there's a road crossing ladder that leads to another road. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's like why would you do that? But anyway, I imagine there's a reason for it that you know there maybe originally it was a corridor between yeah. two habitats, and then patches, it got cut, or it's someone cleared the yeah. cleared the end patch or something, or it got cut. But you know that. That aside, you know, that seems to be a bit of a no-brainer. You don't want a corridor that leads to something that's going to kill off butterflies. <laughs> so just complete population sink. <laughs> but, you know, that aside, I think it's a really important result. And I guess it's not one that's overly surprising, but it's nice to have it proven scientifically. Yeah, quantitatively. And in quite such a simple way, you follow a butterfly around, you drop some markers and you GPS it. And it's really relevant, I think, to the way we do conservation at the government level in Australia. You know, the offset policies that our governments have adopted over the last couple of decades are really contingent around um, the, the initial idea behind them was that you, if you want to clear a patch of habitat, you have to provide more of that habitat for protection. Um, and so that was a really nice idea. It was sort of essentially saying that at least half of what we have left should be preserved. It's not how it's really been implemented. So governments sort of latched onto it and then they made a slight change which said, or you can do a replanting of a cleared habitat. Um, you know, doing restoration is a good thing and I certainly support that as a con conservation ecologist. But there are many species which we've been able to prove you cannot do habitat restoration for. Black-throated finch is a good one. Yeah. No one's ever successfully done a habitat restoration for black-throated finch and have them come back and start using it. Yeah, right. Which makes the idea that there's more promised offsets for black-throated finches than there is existing habitat left a little bit scary. Right. right. Um, and the same is going to go for a lot of these specialist butterflies. And I think this paper really proves it, that you can't offset high quality habitat because high quality habitat is different in, in the way the butterflies inside of it behave. And I think that's something that a lot of researchers know instinctively just from their field observations. But to be able to point to a paper that says this is true, you know, when somebody says, I want to clear the last habitat for this butterfly species, I'm going to plant 10 times as much over there. Yeah, it you doesn't know, matter. <laughs> you can say, sure, you can plant it, but in 100 years' time, they still won't be using it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and and you do see that in the field. You go to some of those remnant areas and you end up seeing some specialists who really can't move out of those areas. That's right. I mean, um, a really good example of that in Brisbane suburbs was the Greater Glider Conservation Park. Um, you know, we had up until like, you know, five or six years ago, a really nice population of koalas and greater gliders living in this suburban fragment in the Kapalabar area. And in the last few years, they've just dropped out. Um, and it's just because, you know, they can't persist in such a small area. It's not viable for a population. We're going to see that a lot more um, as we cut up the landscape for fracking and for gas pipelines and things like that. A lot of these species, which are specialists, are probably going to start to really struggle as you sort of dissect their landscape up. Yeah, they're going to be definitely be the ones that need a bit more focus in terms of conservation, I suppose. Um, all right, uh, Chris, we might have to wrap it up there. I think uh, I think that's about our time. Um, 
thank you so much for today. This has been uh, an absolute pleasure and uh, people can check out the app at butterflies.org.au or on Facebook and Twitter at OzButterflies. Where else uh, can people find you and this, uh, this amazing app? Uh, well, that's basically it. Um, you know, we're sort of focused on Facebook and Twitter for our social media. Um, we will probably start a YouTube channel eventually. Uh, but that's not up and running yet. Oh, um, cool. I look forward to that, man. It's going to be great. But our website's going to be our main, I guess, our main way of keeping in touch with the project. And then Facebook's probably the main, the next main sort of news source. Cool. And everybody can grab that off uh, basically any app store for their smartphone. Uh, cheers, guys. Uh, we're going to get out of here and uh, maybe wander around the garden, see what butterflies we got running around. Um, Chris, it's been an absolute joy. And uh, uh, hopefully you can join us in the future if uh, there's some more developments with uh, Australian butterflies. Sounds great. Thanks, mate. Cheers. It's been a pleasure. <laughs> Thank All you. All right, people. Um, we shall be back shortly with some more wildlife cake and cocktails for you all. Plenty more amazing climate-related shows and uh, lots of conservation stuff coming up. Thanks, folks. Talk soon. Bye.